Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Cut to the Crime, the podcast that discusses the prosecution and defense arguments of the most controversial cases. I'm your host, Cynthia Huang Duong. And I'm your co-host, Adriana Campos. Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to let the listeners know a little bit about us. We're both high school seniors, and this podcast is a little project we're doing for a class in hopes of raising awareness about the prospects of wrongful convictions. So today we're going to talk about one of North Carolina's most notorious and sensationalized murder cases, the case of Jeffrey R. McDonald. We'll discuss the ins and outs of this case, so be sure to listen all the way through to find out for yourself whether he is innocent or guilty. When you think about what makes a murder or a convict, Jeffrey's background story doesn't necessarily follow the conventional path. He was born in Queens, New York, and although his father was strict, he was not violent towards his family. In high school, he was actually very popular, being voted both the most popular and the most likely to succeed, and becoming president of the student council and prom king. He also enrolled into Princeton University as a pre-med student and joined the United States Army as a physician and later a surgeon. So, you can tell that this guy was practically the epitome of success. So, Jeffrey and one of his victims, Colette Stevenson, actually had history. He began dating Colette in high school. They broke up and then reunited in college. She would later become his wife and victim. When Colette fell pregnant to their first child, Kimberly, the couple decided to marry. Three years after Kimberly's birth, Kristen was born. They actually had a baby due at the time of the murders. The four-person family moved to the house where the crime scene would occur, 544 Castle Drive. Here's where the case really begins. The day before was a super normal average day. Jeffrey took his daughters to ride the pony that he had bought them for Christmas in the afternoon. Colette attended her teaching classes and Jeffrey had put Christian to bed before watching TV with Kimberly and later Colette. He fell asleep in the living room and on February 17, 1970, the four black military police responded to an emergency call from a distraught Jeffrey, yelling, My name is Captain McDonald. There's been stabbings, and I need a doctor. MPs and an ambulance at 544 Castle Drive. Please hurry. Upon their arrival at the residence, the military police discovered the bloody homicide of the McDonald family and the only living member, Jeffrey R. McDonald. Colette was found in the master bedroom where she suffered from stab wounds and blows from a bludgeon. Jeffrey was lying beside her, alive with a stab wound. Jeffrey notified the military police that his children's room were down the hall. In five-year-old Kimberly's and two-year-old Kristen's rooms, their bodies were on their beds, dead from stab wounds and blows to the head. So let's get on to the nitty-gritty details of the case. Four weapons were uncovered at the crime scene. A piece of wood, an old hickory knife, and an ice pick, and a Geneva forge knife but we won't be talking about the last one as much because not all were used to commit the murders. Jeffrey claimed that he was attacked by three black men and one white woman in the living room. He said that he was struck by a bludgeon, causing his concussion. So that piece of wood bludgeon with bloodstains was found outside the utility room door, where the military police entered. Colette McDonald's broken forearms and Kimberly's fractured skulls were the result of this wood bludgeon. When it was compared with the wood material in the residence, it was determined that the wood grains and growth rings matched. This means that the weapon did not come from an outside source. Now the important thing is the location of the wood splinters, which were recovered from three bedrooms. 
This is contradictory to Jeffrey's account of the murders because no wooden splinters were found in the living room. So it is pretty clear that the prosecution argument dove really deep into the details about the evidence, which during trial was actually very difficult for defense. However, despite these pieces of circumstantial evidence, there were a lot of flaws during the investigation of the crime scene. Prosecution actually failed to secure the crime scene, so there were about 27 people going in and out of the premises, which could have compromised the crime scene because of the transfer and contamination of physical evidence. For example, a fragment of skin recovered from Colette's fingernail was lost. That's a crucial point and perhaps the greatest flaw of the prosecution. So I will be talking about the evidence. Just keep in mind these issues of transfer and contamination. The primary weapon used against all the family members was the hickory knife found under the shrub outside the utility room door. The autopsy photos of the stabbed victims were gruesome, and I wouldn't advise you to look for them yourselves. Colette suffered from 16 knife stabs in the chest and neck, Kimberly with 8 to 10 knife stabs in her neck, and Kristen suffered from 17 stab wounds in her chest, neck, hands, back, and heart. Yeah, I saw the photos, and they were extremely grisly. That's why we have to keep in mind that on the stand, Jeffrey proclaimed the importance of what his family was to him and how he felt about their deaths. As a father and husband, it was difficult to comprehend that Jeffrey would have committed such crimes. This is someone who had led a successful life and who had loved his family. But he did have an affair twice that raises the question about his love for his family. But he claimed that during the time of the murder, they were pleased with their lives. For example, a little before the murders, he spent time with his daughters, buying them a pony. Moving on with other evidence, an ice pick was also used, with 21 stabs in the chest to Colette and 15 to Kristen. I just wanted to add that Jeffrey had claimed that he placed his blue pajama top over her body after his struggle with the intruders. This is where there continues to be discrepancies in Jeffrey's account of the crime. On Colette's body, the stab wounds ran through the blue pajama top laid on top of her. Well, according to the statement, he had wrapped the blue material around his hands to defend himself from the assault of the ice pick. Blue fibers from Jeffrey's pajamas were recovered from beneath his wife's deceased body and in the bedrooms of the two daughters. Yet there were no blue fibers in the living room where Jeffrey alleged it was torn when he attempted to defend himself against his attackers. There were also 40 smooth and cylindrical ice pick holes in Jeffrey's top that were the result of 21 thrusts of the ice pick which paralleled the number and pattern of Colette's stabbing. And if his story was true, the contours of the holes would have been irregular as he frantically moved the fabric to defend himself. The blood-stained torn tip of a surgical glove was recovered beneath the master bedroom headboard, and it was identical to the medical supply Jeffrey stored in the kitchen, which once again means that there was no exterior source of murder. There was no presence of blood on the phones Jeffrey used or the Geneva Forge knife that Jeffrey claimed he removed from his wife's chest. In fact, his blood was only found on his glasses in the living room, on the cabinet storing the surgical gloves, and on the bathroom sink, which incriminates him even more because he allegedly inflicted the wound upon himself in the bathroom. Jeffrey actually had an argument for this. Due to his surgical background, it can be considered an automatic response to wash his hands and check his injuries before calling the MPs. Now this is the evidence that creates the ambiguity of the case. Colette's blood was found in Kristen's room, as well as written on the headboard of the master bedroom, spelling the word pig. This connects the McDonald family murders with the Manson family murders, because in their infamous murders, the hippies wrote, 
death to pigs on the wall. This is where the controversial evidence comes in. A 1970 copy of Esquire magazine containing an article of the Manson family murders was in the living room. This implies that Jeffrey attempted to copycat the murders to frame drug hippies. Don't forget to take into account that the copy of the Esquire magazine was mishandled by the CID agents. This hindered the analysis of the owner of the fingerprints recovered by laboratory technicians. Jeffrey also had injuries, such as bruises, cuts, and fingernail scratches, a mild concussion, and a stab wound to his chest. So, doesn't it support his story that he was defending himself against the attackers? Well, he didn't have defensive wounds consistent with his struggle with the alleged intruders, though. Like I said before, he could have inflicted the stab wound upon himself, but made sure he would survive in the bathroom where blood was found. Kenneth Michael, the military police, actually witnessed a woman in a floppy hat, which proves Jeffrey's story. However, the criminal investigation department disregarded this sighting. Their knowledge of the drug community surrounding Fort Bragg, along with various other pieces of evidence that did not pertain to their argument. Basically, they were selectively choosing their own evidence. Yes, there were a lot of flaws with the prosecution's investigation. However, the judge did not allow Helena's out-of-court statements into evidence because she contradicted herself a lot. There is also Greg Mitchell, a Vietnam veteran who also confessed to the crime. He painted I Killed McDonald's Wife and Children on the walls of where he was seeking rehabilitation for his substance abuse problems. Well, similarly to Stokely, he suffered from mental health issues, so the prosecution disregarded his testimony. On August 29th, Jerry was convicted of one count of first-degree murder for the death of Christian and two counts of second-degree murder for Colette and Kimberly's death. Currently, Jeffrey is incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland. Until this day, Jeffrey McDonald continues to maintain his innocence. Personally, we're leaning towards the guilty side. We took into account the investigation flaws and bias of the prosecution. However, at the end of the day, the strong evidence does not favor Jeffrey McDonald. There were too many discrepancies in his story to miss, so we're inclined to believe he is guilty. Question of the day, what is Jeffrey's motive? The motive is quite unclear for us, but perhaps it was his lack of freedom, being trapped in his family life that caused him to explode. He did have an affair twice. But what do you listeners think? Is he innocent or guilty? Thank you for tuning in. This is our first episode, so we're a bit rusty. In the next episode, we'll talk about another controversial case, so stay tuned for more. And because this podcast mission is to spread awareness about the probability of wrongful convictions, we would love it if you, the listeners, could donate by clicking on the link in our podcast show notes. We will be donating all the donations to nonprofit organizations that work to exonerate innocent convicts.